it was one of those games I've never deleted. It's still on my PS5 today. Um, I go back to it regularly. It is such a fun game, and it was just something that I really, really love. This is why you should play Axiom Verge. Hello, and welcome to the first ever full episode recording of Why You Should Play. Oftentimes, they say that you should save the best for last, uh, but once in a while, we don't believe in that, and that really is the case for this go-around, without a doubt. In the process of um, planning out episodes and deciding what combination of guests and topics or games, rather, that, that I would want to cover, this guest was obviously at the very, very top of who I wanted to bring on the show. It was just a matter of what game did I did I want to cover? And I kind of looked back and over the past few years, I've really rediscovered my love of the genre of game that we're going to cover today. And so during the process of, of cooking, I decided let's do the dessert first and let's, let's, let's get right to the, the sweet stuff. Um, and so speaking of, of cooking and desserts, my, my guest today is a prolific baker and chef, an exemplary school teacher, an inspirational distance runner, uh, a super fan of Final Fantasy and Kingdom Hearts and Crash Bandicoot. He is also a fiance, and last but not least, he is a friend. Sean, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Um Wow, I, I do not deserve that intro. Uh, thank you so much. Uh, that is, wow, I did not expect that that intro. Wow, thank you. No, to be honest, like that, all those things that they mean the world to me. You're much too kind to me. Everyone is much too kind to me. Um, you guys, honestly, everyone means so much to me. And, you know, you guys have done so much for me to help me. And I will be forever in debt to all of you. Wow. I don't say this often, but I am going to go out on a limb and say I speak for everyone when I say we are we are more than happy to do so, without a doubt. But a little bit of a soft opening. What are you currently playing? All right, so I am currently playing. I just finished, well, I finished like last week, Dishonored, the first Dishonored game. I had never mm. played Dishonored before. Uh, I actually only started playing it because, well, at PAX East, I ran into Lord Sovereign from the Iron Lords podcast. Um, great, we, great man. Yes, he, he's an awesome guy. We had a very long discussion about why I need to play Dishonored, the Dishonored series, and pray. So um, after talking with Sov a little bit, he told me, all right, you start with Dishonored and Dishonored 2 and then go to pray. So I got home from PAX. I had dinner and I booted up Dishonored and I immediately fell in love with it. And I played through that game within a week and a half, went back and played it again and instantly like was like, oh my gosh, how have I not played this game? This series is amazing. <laughs> so then I booted up Dishonored 2 and I'm right at the end. I had to stop for a little bit because we had a lot of stuff going on at work. I didn't get to play as many games as I would like. So I've right at the end of Dishonored 2, and I I cannot believe how fun these games are and how the different 
amount of variety and like options you have and your play style i'm going trying to i'm trying to do it stealthy i understand you can beat the game without killing anyone which is ridiculous i'm just trying to kill as least amount of people as possible because i'm not you know don't want to kill that many people um yeah but the game is phenomenal and i am so looking forward to uh playing prey uh kind of kind of disappointed about the redfall news because this was getting me really hyped for redfall same arcane but it's okay i'll play it eventually yeah praise praise one that has remained installed i played a good bit of the first dishonored and i wanted to go back to it but i really kind of like you alluded to i really wanted to play it super stealthily and stealth games are as a broad genre is still something that I'm really trying to warm up to. It requires so much patience and calculation with how you approach certain scenarios and different rooms that you go into, etc. And I've taken a liking to the recent uh, Hitman games. I've played a few of those levels, but Dishonored is, is one that I definitely want to go back to. And I would say that potentially Prey is one that I would consider having on, having on this podcast. You know, obviously I would need to play and beat it, but more of the sci-fi setting of Prey, I think, is more of my alley. But yeah, I definitely want to get back to those games because I've heard just everyone who's played them has just raved about them. Yeah, I can't believe I've waited this long to play them. It's a, it's a great feeling, isn't it? To when you're like, I can't, you have that feeling, like, I can't believe I waited this long, right? And the, today's game is an example of that for me. But is there anything else that you're currently playing or is that just occupied a lot of your gaming space? Um, That's occupied the majority of it, but I have uh, been replaying Octopath 2, even though I put I originally put 95 mm-hmm. hours into my first playthrough. Um, that was on wow. Steam Deck, um, but I'm playing wow. through it again on PlayStation now. Just, you know, just because I, awesome. I love it and I want to see it on the big screen. And That game, I played the demo for it. That game is beautiful. It's gorgeous. The people that knock on like a, pixel art i'm like you you need to you need to look at these hd 2d games that uh square enix is putting out they are just gorgeous between the 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 artwork uh and the music that complements it it's just it's it's borderline perfect yeah no, um, no doubt it really it's it's when you you know people there's a debate about whether games are uh are art or a, or a science or software i'm like that's that game is is a good portion of it is art you know and, and that's what i an example of what i would point to is when video games are art is uh, is that, and you know, we, we will, we will, there will be another game that I will call art that will appear on this podcast soon. Uh, that's, that's what I'll kind of say to, to give a little bit of a hint to people. So the game that we are here, well, the games specifically that we are here to discuss are Axiom Verge one and two. And so I was kind of thinking about where do, where do we start with this? And I think about kind of the theme of this podcast is, you know, discovering good games and, and games that got underappreciated and I kind of start with the genesis. Like, how did you discover Axiom Verge? So Axiom Verge 1, I was day one. Um, how I discovered it, uh, listening to P.S. I Love You, XOXO, a throwback to when uh, Colin Moriarty was on the Kind of Funny, you know, when they had their P.S. I Love You podcast. I was listening to it and they mentioned mm-hmm. Axiom Verge and they, uh, this guy, Thomas Happ, who developed a game solely by himself he did every single little thing uh, by himself it's incredible which it's incredible at first i was like okay that is that's an incredible feat but what can i expect from a game like this and then i just heard i you know i started researching it and everyone was praising how this game was going to be like awesome and it was the next great metroidvania and you know i looked it up and i was like all right well i'm going to be there day one 
And I put a little note in my phone to just remind myself because at that point, I, I don't think it was available for pre. I don't even think you could pre-order it at that point. You can really pre-order like indies. I don't even know if you still can. Some some games you can, some games you can't. But I put a little note in my phone and the day it came out, I remember getting it and I, you know, w- immediately fell in love with just the game. And the art style is so 1990s, NES, Super Nintendo-ish. Um, mm-hmm. Just the play style, the weapons. I... I fell in love and, you know, I love the story and I, I played through it on my Vita and I ended up beating it in maybe three or four nights. I remember that because I was in, it was my freshman year of college and I, I, mm-hmm. I beat it in like three or four nights and I just, I wanted more of it. And I immediately looked up like, is there going to be a sequel? Like there has to be a sequel. <laughs> and um, luckily I guess Thomas Hap had already announced the sequel before the first one even came out just due to like, I think being backed on, it was either Kickstarter or some type of, you know, f- form where you could fund, yeah, crowd, fund the game, crowd, yeah, crowdsource or whatever it is. Yeah. Um, so yeah. we had already announced a sequel and I was like, oh my gosh, I cannot wait. And it's just one of those games that I have had on my Vita forever, never deleted it. Um, when I got my, it was always on my PS4 too. So I had that cross, the cross by. It was one of those games I've never deleted. It's still on my PS5 today. Um, I go back to it regularly. It is such a fun game and it was just something that i really really love and day i was day one axiom verge 2 as well um i want to show him support because i'm loving what he's doing and i really look forward to anything he does in the future if i remember axiom verge 2 is your game of the year for that year is that correct that is correct it was my My, game of the year in 2021 my memory does not fail me yeah 2021 goatee my my story with this game is kind of twofold. One of them is um, I did the first game. I went the very old school, some would say boomer route. I was inside an actual brick and mortar store called GameStop. And once in a while, GameStop does some things that are good. And in this case, they had a buy two, get one free on pre-owned games in the store. And that included Switch games. So I was like, you know what? I prefer to get the Switch games physically you know, they retain their value, the cartridges are more reliable, et cetera, et cetera. So I was in there looking at the shelves and I, to be honest with you to this day, I don't remember what the other two games were, but I was looking for a third game. I was like, oh, let me, let me get something free. And then I saw the box art and the box art is very iconic for those of you who don't, who aren't familiar at all with the game. uh, I will try to get, I will try to get it on the episode thumbnail. It's very evocative of Metroid, obviously, but just generally speaking, it sticks out. It's a giant face looking down at a platform where, you know, a new item or ability would be in a Metroidvania. And it just says Axiom Verge. And it's a very, like you said, Sean, the, the environment is very sort of sci-fi, sort of eerie. And I was like, let me let me check this game out. So I, I looked it up on Google and um, it had really good reviews. I think it was like mid 80s, low mid 80s. I'm like, all right, let me, let me grab this. I had no idea what the game was and I bought it pretty much off of the box art. Which, again, you said that's part of harkening back to the old NES, SNES days, which had very iconic box art, even though you had no clue what the game was. I had no idea it was a Metroidvania. And as it goes, as many people have mocked me for, I just never got around to it. I bought the game and never fired it up, probably in favor of the other two games or new releases that came out. But it sort of came full circle when you were raving about them. And so part of the theme of this podcast is it's kind of associating games that you love and part of the origin of those games being the people that recommended them, which I will tell you will be a constant theme of this podcast and many, many episodes. The people that I have on will kind of be the people that I associate with the games that we're covering. And so 
um, when you said Axiom Verge 2 was your game of the year. And during these past few years, during COVID and everything, uh, one of my sort of one of my specific appreciations about games is the Metroidvania genre. So kind of the stars kind of aligned on that. And I got all of them. And as it goes, I showed this to you a few days ago. I got the steelbook for the first game, which is awesome. It, the, the, it is the same. I believe it is the exact same box art as on the cover, which doesn't bother me because again, that art is so, is so evocative. And I think borderline iconic that when you see it, you immediately know what it is, even though again, it does harken back to that sort of very Metroid sort of approach of when you go into a room and get a new item or ability, but it does, I think, stand out on its own. That's my kind of cool, funny story. And in fact, I need to find, I got to dig through one of my bins and find my physical copy of the first game. But uh, yeah, so talking about Metroidvanias, uh, what is, how would you say, do you do you love the genre as a whole? Is it something that you consider one of your favorite genres? Funny thing about Metroidvanias are I have a very shallow history with Metroid and Castlevania in that I've never okay. played a Castlevania game. And mm. uh, the only Metroid games I've actually played are Super Metroid. And uh, which one's the original Game Boy Advance game? Like, it's not the remake of one. Is that is that Fusion or is that... um? I think so. I am not sure. You know sure. what I'm talking my, about the other one, right? Zero. I think game. so. Yeah. Yeah, maybe. Cool. My, my my history with handhelds is very, very sketchy, but um I think that's right. I think it's either I think it's either fusion or uh or zero mission. Yeah, no, yeah someone well, is someone I, is I screaming played, at us right now. Yeah, definitely. Someone's like, what is wrong with yeah, you? Yeah, you, yeah, you yeah, you it's you fake fake fans. But. Yeah. Um but I played the whatever the original Game Boy Advance game was, yeah. um, and I played Super Metroid. Those are the only two Metroid games I've ever played. Um, my sister's probably going to kill me for admitting that. That's um, that's fine. Well, it's out. In, it's going to be out in the open now, so there's no excuses. <laughs> yeah, of course. Um, but so I don't have a like great history with Metroid or Castlevania, but these, you know, what we've become known as Metroidvania style games, I absolutely mm-hmm. love. Like, yes, I love running around a giant area, finding weapons later on, or finding abilities later on, and coming back and accessing places that you couldn't go before even if it's just to find like a small chest or open up an, an entire expanded area it's just something about those games that i love and predominantly most of them are in the art style that i really love a lot of them are you know 16 you know throwback to 16 bit 8 bit games and i just like even though i wasn't alive for the, that generation of you know consoles like i just have such nostalgia for it mainly because i grew up with a super nintendo even though the n64 was already out when i was born but it's just, just something that something about it just always spoke to me. And I always have a soft spot for games like this. So when I heard about Axiom Verge, like I said, I knew I was all in for this. That's a really good summation of you described of why I love these games. And um, for those for those who are like really, really unfamiliar with Metroidvania, sort of the I, I did some I did a little bit. I did my own research online and sort of tried to find a really succinct sort of academic dictionary definition. And, you know, I went to the authoritative website called wikipedia where i think it kind of summed it up pretty well in a sentence it's it describes a metroidvania as a sub genre of action adventure games and or platformers that is focused on non-linearity and utility gated exploration and progression so broadly speaking you are dropped into a map and there is no traditional left or right guided navigation to complete a level or area necessarily and to unlock additional areas of the map you either need some sort of new ability for your character or a new ability for your weapon and that is 
very much the case of Axiom Verge. And I was thinking uh, during these past few years and leading up to the recording of this of this episode, I was thinking, why do I love Metroid? Like, why do you know? Why do these kind of games connect with me? Um, uh, the, the cops sound like they're not happy yeah, with um, linearity. Yeah, shout that. out to the cops. No, no worries, no worries. They're coming for us. But uh, uh, and I was thinking, you know, over the past few years, another thing with with games that has cropped up is sort of this what we call open world burnout, right? Where it's like you have these large maps and oh, you can go anywhere. And I'm thinking, but a lot of times with these open world games, it's very, very unfulfilling. You just kind of you yeah, you can aimlessly wander around, but there really isn't much in the world. And I'm thinking with with Metroidvanias, the accomplishment is there is accomplishment and reward in just getting to new areas of the map themselves. And I'm thinking you don't necessarily even need like really challenging boss battles or combat. You just need to sort of be curious and try your new abilities and weapons. And it really forces you to, to use them. A lot of games um, you can maybe get a new ability or weapon and you don't even necessarily need to use it to, to get through the game. But in these games, it's, it's just really, really exquisite design. I think with, with the challenge being just getting to a new area of the map or even a new sub area within one of the main areas of the overall map. And I think that's why they really click with me. And I don't think I'll ever get tired of them. I know the um, the Ori games are the ones that really got me to fall back in love with them. And I've played some Metroid. I've played some Castlevania. And certainly the Axiom Verge games have specifically Metroid just written all over them in their design and to some degree the aesthetic as well. So let's let's get right into this game. The first The first topic's... The first topic that I wanted to cover for both of these games specifically, and to clear it up with the audience, we'll, we'll kind of talk broadly about both games simultaneously. We'll, of course, refer to what uh, the specific game does. The one thing that instantly stands out in the game is sort of the world and the environment, and I kind of include the music in that as well, because one thing that both games do so well, there's, there's such a, a symbiosis, I guess. There's such a congruity between the environments and the overall world and the music as well. And it, it's, again, you, you mentioned the, the gentleman, Tom Happ, he, he really had a clear vision for not only the overall world, but the sort of areas within uh, both games worlds that you're going to explore. And when you get into a new area, you see a new artistic design, you see new enemy designs and you see new music and it makes the game feel so fresh, even when you're, even when you're forced to backtrack, right. Which is, which is a staple in these sort of games. Yeah, even even um, I know this word's often overused in the last few years, but the the different biomes of each world mm-hmm. of each game, yeah. it's insane the difference mm-hmm. um, between areas. You can go from climbing a snowy mountain to all of a sudden you're in a tropical lake. Yeah, yeah, I think that's and that's then, one. It fits. It fits. Yeah, I think that's um, one thing that I really appreciate about both games is that I think there when you fire up Axiom Verge two, it's it's it is a distinctly different game from its predecessor, which is really important when you're making a sequel. Cause a lot of another topic is recently in AAA games is like, well, it's just more of the same, like, Oh, it's just more of the predecessor, but in Axiom Verge two, like it fits as a sequel. It fits in the overall world that Axiom Verge one created, but it also feels so distinctly different in the environments and the gameplay. And even, I don't even want to spoilers, but you play as a different character in Axiom Verge two and it, it took me, it threw me for a loop when I first fired up Axiom Verge 2. I'm like, whoa, this is definitely different in a lot of ways, but it still feels like Axiom Verge and sort of the broad um, artistic language that that Mr. Hap was trying to speak. And, and oh man, the music just, 
Yeah, that's the one thing that really struck me because when you look at these like really, really small indie games developed by one person, you're you're kind of looking for, okay, where is the compromise gonna be? And a lot of times it's um a lot of times it's no voice acting, which is understandable, right? That's a lot of that's a lot of additional costs to incur. And I don't really mind that. That's that's totally fine because there's so much talking to you with the music and the and the world and the artistic design that um but the music is what really what really stuck out having such unique music for every area um what 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 specifically stuck out to you between both games about sort of the the world and the environments and the music you you it's, you brought up the music but every single boss fight you encounter the intensity of the music just ramps up and you know you're in for a fight yeah. it's it's ins- it, i love it and you know you hear that intense music you hear like the bosses making like those those like eight bit, sixteen bit noises, and you're like, "Oh boy, we're in for it." And some of them are extremely unique. I found the boss designs to be so cool, and the abilities the bosses have—they can sometimes strip you of your power. Um, some of them are ridiculously hard. Um, even the first boss you encounter in Axiom Bridge One, I died the first time I, I fought it. I died it had to be at least ten times before I finally, you know, figured out. Okay. I, I know how I can beat them here. There's no pattern to um, some of the bosses. Some of the bosses are very unique in that they adapt to where you're like where your player is standing. So they're not just shooting in the same area. They're not dropping, you know, bombs or grenades in the same area. They adapt to you. I found that so cool and so amazing. Um, one other thing you mentioned, the, the diversity between one and two. Um, you had mentioned different protagonists. It's almost like you're playing a different game, mm-hmm. like a completely different setting that wouldn't be named Axiom Verge at first. Mm-hmm. But they even changed the combat. Like you're not shooting guns in the second yes. one. It's, it's melee combat, which that blew my mind when I boot, yeah. um, booted up Axiom Verge 2 because I tried to, I didn't really know anything about it, uh, the second game. I just knew I was going to be day one buying it. And I just couldn't believe how much smooth I, I feel like it controlled a lot smoother the second game not that the first game you know didn't control well but uh just the movement felt so much smoother and the environments were a lot more expansive and uh it was it was awesome i everything about the game i just you know i fell in love with uh one thing in particular that i really really liked is that you had mentioned that there's no voice acting and i think that it does the game justice i i couldn't see this game being voiced and funny enough i was going to mention this later on but i'll mention it now uh in an interview with um thomas Happ, he had said that they originally he wanted to put voices in particularly just for the um for some of the characters not all of them not like every single line of dialogue but for, for some of the main story beats and he said that Originally, the main character of the first game, Trace, was going to sound like Otacon from uh, Metal Gear Solid. Yeah, he said he got inspiration that's, from that. That's yeah. funny because he look he even resembles him. That's very, very funny. When I saw him, I'm like, that looks like Otacon. It's funny you mentioned that because in the first game, a lot of the the higher beings that you do interact with, they speak in like a broken English. So I think that that would not have translated as well in voice acting, and it, but it, it works for, for text because it literally is like they're their alien language is being translated to you in text form. So I, and again, maybe that's, maybe I'm looking too deeply into it, but I feel like that's what he was going for. And you said with the gameplay as well, I really, really appreciated that. So in the first game, you know, it's primarily like projectile focus. You get this gun and you get different modes of fire. And there's, each one is is distinctly different, which is again, is a credit to the design of the game. Like you have- Some much better than others. 
Yeah, yeah, so much better. But that's the, that's the beauty of it, right? You can you can choose which one works best for you. And like, there's the standard fire, which is kind of the old reliable. And I forget the names of them. Again, that's another thing. He really he really um, uses imagination with a lot of these names. And the one that I liked the most was the shotgun blast, the sort of green electrical. Okay. Yep. Yeah, I like that one a lot, especially against the uh, the really hostile zombie enemies that are really super. Oh aggro. my gosh, that run at you! The oh my god, you, they're, yeah. like, <laughs> they're they're super aggro. They do a lot of damage. Oh my goodness, yeah. So, um, yeah, I, I really liked that weapon a lot. And I think I think how many different weapons did I end up with? I think I went, ended up with like eight or nine. I remember DMing you and like I I think I, I DM'd you and I said I think I got all the weapons and then like literally five minutes later I got another one and I'm like oh my goodness man. The game just throws more and more at you. Yeah, and like you said, the second game is more melee and um you do I, I feel you, like it's a lot more speed based. Yeah. I found the first game more challenging because it wasn't more of that traditional right. NES uncompromising punishing, I would say. And it, but it was more combat focused as well. And but yeah, the second game it really stands out on its own as a distinctly different game. And one thing I, I did want to point out about gameplay aspects of both games is, so in the first game, you have the scrambler. You can manipulate objects, geometry within the world, but you can also manipulate enemies. Whereas in the second one, you have the hacking mechanic, which I really, really loved. Um, it, it's It kind of reminded me, you spoke about Dishonored. It kind of reminded me of being in a stealth game where you can like manipulate enemies or hack turrets or to turn them on your side. And that's what I, re- I did not expect that at all in a Metroidvania. And I really, really, really appreciated that. I think the second game definitely does a much better job at utilizing mm-hmm. those enemies to your uh, advantage. At uh, some places it's, it's ultimately necessary. Uh, you can turn some enemies into floating blocks or floating machines, more so blocks in the first game. In the second game, I think they did a much better job at keeping them in their kind of original image original yeah. like what they originally look like to help you you can jump on yeah. them and they'll, they'll become like moving platforms almost i think they did a phenomenal job with that and it ultimately like you had brought up it can you can go through areas without really killing them if you like you're like i just need to get through here fast and you haven't unlocked spoiler that well it's not really a spoiler Eventually, oh yeah, yeah that's, i would not consider no yeah fast um, travel. yeah this the second game does have fast yeah, travel the first you one do, but does not at all i don't think has a not fast travel, but there's like an area you go to where you can basically get to predominantly yeah. anywhere on okay. the map. Like very, yeah, yeah, very yeah, yeah. I know what you're talking about. Yeah, that remind that reminds me of another Metroidvania as well. Yeah, I know what you're referring yeah. to. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Like if you want to get through an area really quickly, you can ultimately use that, you know, that hacker and just make sure most of the enemies are on your side and then other enemies get mm-hmm. aggroed toward the enemies on your side. And it's it's awesome. One very cool aspect that I really like in both games is the the drone. Like being able to control the drone and bring the drone essentially anywhere on the map, especially in the first game, anywhere on the map, like away from your character and be like your character could be on one end of the map and the drone could be on completely other side of the map and you're just controlling the drone. I love that. I thought it was really cool with the different abilities you get. You can hover. Um, it allows you to access areas that you've never been able to go to before. You can break small blocks. Um, when I first got the drone, I remember just going back and just shooting it as high as I could to try to, you know, uncover little bits of the map. I'm like, oh, well, I got to uncover all the map in this area. So I'm going to shoot the drone up because I can, it will like reveal two more blocks mm-hmm. when I, you know, look at the world map overall. Yeah. Um, and even, even in yeah, the first game, you get, you, you get a drill. Like you just, you get, get a straight up drill to drill through, uh, to literally drill through blocks, which was funny. It seemed like, I think a lot of games would have just maybe given you, um, 
another addition to your uh, to your primary weapon. But this game is like, no, you get a whole separate drill that's its own button that you use. And I really appreciate that. And the drill not only damages blocks, it damages enemies too. There was a lot of times there's these sort of like giants, I don't know how to describe them, these sort of like turtle the shoot the gas. Oh my gosh, the thing, oh, the turtles yeah. that when they're uh, yeah. not, yeah, when they're not facing you, they shoot gas. Those things, yeah, what oh was, my gosh, they what got was, so again, aggravated. I tried to do trial area. and error. I figured out that the drone, you can damage them with the drone's normal fire. You, I don't think you could damage them at all with your with any of your guns, but the drill damages them. So it's like learning little caveats about what works best against yeah. which enemies. That really, really helps. Like and there were some, uh, there were some really small like bat enemies that attacked you in swarms. Where I thought, well, the the shotgun gun that I like to use a lot, it's too close range. Like I wouldn't be able to take them out too much. Like eventually they would hit me. But um, there's a really longer, like electrical sort of shockwave, long distance pulse gun that did a lot of area of effect damage and just wiped them out immediately. So um, again, that speaks to the design of the game where it's like, yeah, you're going to have an enemy variety, but you're also going to have a weapon and tool variety to be able to address pretty much everything that is thrown at you in the game and it's funny that you mentioned the drone because that kind of leads into sort of the second part of this gameplay aspect is i want to sort of delve into like if someone really likes the metroid games and they like metroidvanias i think this game is very much up your alley because that drone is basically like an enhanced morph ball i think in the metroid games you know it's it's a small version of yourself you use it to go into smaller pathways you can jump it can find new upgrades and unlockables for you and that was a really a case of where, hey, um, I, again, I'm, I'm, maybe I'm looking too deeply into this, but Thomas Happ saw the Morph Ball and it's like, what, what if we could do more with this? And maybe you could eventually do other things that I don't want to spoil. Uh, what's funny about the first Axiom Verge game is right off the bat, it's an homage to Metroid in that the first ability that you get is to your left. So if you play the original Metroid, the very first Metroid game, it, it knows that a lot of gamers at that point are trained to go right, you know, like Mario and a lot of other games. Well, this game says, no, in order to go anywhere, you have to go left to this side room. And it's the exact same way with, with uh, Axiom Verge. And I believe it's your, uh, I believe it's your standard fire pistol is, is the one that you, that you get. And it helps you, I think it helps you clear blocks away or something, but yeah, that's, that's, that's two homage, two direct homages and inspirations from, from Metroid. And you'd spoken to the enemy variety and the boss design. A lot of them are sort of these, um, mechanized mix with with bug types and that's obviously like a staple out of out of metroid as well oh and also the different attachments that you get for your gun are like the different types of blaster fire that you get for for samus as well in the metro games and so yeah i just really really appreciated that and there is there's something else there's something very specific in axiom verge 2 that i won't spoil that i was like okay this is just a love letter to to metroid and um yeah, was there was there anything else that you wanted to to speak to about the inspirations? Well, I definitely think there's some inspiration from Legend of Zelda: A Link to the Past, which I cannot believe we have not mentioned the breach yet. Basically, it's like an entire map. Yes, like yeah. an alternate an alternate world to the main map, and um, I think they do a great job with it in the first game, and I think in the second game they just take it to the next level, where basically the entire map is accessible in the breach and the areas are all different and the enemies are different and it is so cool how they do that um it's like they took they took two different puzzles with obvious holes in each um in each puzzle and sort of the gaps in each puzzle fill in each other is that that's do you think i'm explaining it right how would you how would you explain it 
Yeah, for sure. I, I feel um, like there's areas in the main in the main world that you're like, how do I get over there? Like, there's no way yeah. to get in there. And you're like, oh, I, I must come back with, you know, a power up later. And then you realize like, no, there's nothing for me to be able to get in there. And then you realize it's accessible through the breach. And when you're in the breach, you go back yeah. to the main, like the main world. And you end up on the other side because of the area you were in the breach. It's really cool. And that's how you get some of the power up, some of the um, weapons. And a lot of the breach at first is only discoverable through the use of the, um, through the use of the drone, which at first I was like, oh, okay, that's pretty cool. You know, the, the breach is like the drone world. And I'm like, all right, cool. And then all of a sudden, boom. And you you get to go to the breach as you know your physical actual self, which is really cool. Yeah, yeah, it really is cool. You touched upon something that I wanted to talk about with the gameplay too. Is that no matter where you go in the game, if you if you explore a new area or you find a little nook or cranny somewhere that's hidden away that you have to do a little bit of extra effort, you may not progress in terms of opening up a new area of the map, but you will almost always get like a new item or a new or ability or some type of new note page. Yeah. Power up a new note page to read about the lore and the story. And it does such a good job that even if you theoretically get stuck, stuck, like many people would know getting stuck in a Metroidvania, um, you're going to get something out of it. The game does a, honestly, it does a better job than most at providing upgrades to your character and to your weapon abilities and everything. And you had spoken how Axiom Verge 2 expands upon that, where you get more of the sort of very, very light RPG elements where you can choose what you want to upgrade. It's like, hey, you get, I forget the name of the uh, of the currency that you get, but you get these sort of canisters and you can buy upgrades to your hacking abilities or your drone's damage or your health or your drone's health. Or I'm actually somehow liking Axiom Verge 2 more and more that I'm that I'm talking about it with you. I think you can tell which game I like better. Yeah, yeah, I, I, totally, I totally understand it. And I think I agree with you. One thing I appreciated about Axiom Verge 2 as well, I think it's there's more of a vibe to the game, I think. Like, I don't know. It's, 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 it felt like a game that was hostile, but it didn't feel like necessarily overbearing or smothering like the first one did. I think the first one has more tighter contained environments. Um, the atmosphere is more eerie, more in that like traditional Metroid um, mold. Whereas the second game, you are essentially thrown into what is a more earth-like atmosphere like you said there's mountains there's lakes there's caverns um you can go underwater it did throw me for a loop i'm like i'm on like a very earth you know atmosphere like antarctica or whatever and you actually run into some human characters as well i'm like wow this is really weird not really weird but necessarily weird but unexpected for a for a sort of metroidvania you're expected to be thrown in like this super fantasy world or an alien planet or what have you but then, yeah, it does get weird. It kind of lulls you into a sense of security and like, oh, there's the breach. It's super, like, really high contrast colors and more um, exotic music. And, yeah, it, it's just more of a full package. It expands upon what the first game does. And I'll speak more to this in the next section. But, yeah, if you if you get through Axiom Verge 1, I think you'll appreciate that game more and you'll enjoy 2 even more, I think. Yeah, I... I... It's definitely, uh, you can play two without playing one, but you definitely get so much more out of it. And especially when you realize how the two games are connected, um, that is so satisfying. Because at first, when you first start playing two, you're like, I don't, like, how are these games connected? Like, other than the, other than being in kind of like the same kind of world, kind of the same enemy design, but I don't understand how are they connected. And then, um, you know, just reading through all like the documents and, 
finding out you don't need to read through all the documents to figure out their the game how how the games are connected but you know reading through all the documents really helps and expands the lore and uh, i really really enjoyed the lore of this game and the the design and how the two games are linked yeah i think what also works for two that i just remembered is that even though it expands upon the world and the lore and offers so much new and different to you it is a surprisingly personal story as well there's that sort of really immediate emotional hook to where you're like okay i'm in even though i'm not really sure how this fits into the broader world and lore and story but um knowing that it was a sequel i was very it made me actually made me more curious again having immediately come off the first game and having that fresh in my mind and i thought the payoff was was awesome i think at the the end it really pays off everything i would say it pays off the personal story it pays off the broader universe and it sure as hell pays off in the music as well when a certain musical line kicked up in an alternate version i was like oh man this got so and they use they use visual and auditory iconography from the first game in the same moment near the end i'm like oh my god this is so good it pays off so well it was it was totally worth the journey if you're at all into metroidvanias you're just gonna especially metroid you're gonna really eat both of these games up and you're really going to be by the end of two you're going to be so you're going to feel so well rewarded i think you would mention the personal journey in the second game and um i i definitely agree with you that it's definitely a personal journey but i would argue the first game is also very much so a personal journey i remember being there with trace and trying to figure out what is going on and you're just as confused as he is and he has no idea what's going on like you do and you're learning as he goes as you go too uh just like you're foreign to the world, so is Trace, the protagonist. Like he's foreign to the world too. He doesn't know what's going on. And I loved that aspect of both of these games, being in this foreign area, not understanding what's going on, trying to figure it out. Um, some betrayals, and yeah, it just it, it really hurts when you see that. It definitely it definitely plays with your expectations on playing a, a, a Metroid game and it does different spins on it. Like the abilities that you get in the first game are basically leftovers from existing um, higher beings within the universe. So it's a lot of times in Metroid games, you like lose your powers or you just pick up these powers within the universe and there necessarily isn't much explanation, but in this game, there's more meaning behind it. Again, it speaks to the design of the game and how much thought, was was put into it and yeah it's i think near the end it's it then it does play with your expectations there is more going on even in the first game and um it was very surprising and i did appreciate it that you think that i don't want to get into spoilers but the premise by which you enter the world in the first game is not what it initially seems or is certainly not what your uh what your expectations were and then the second game comes uh, around near the end to really pay off a lot of that, not only within the second game, but within the first game as well. And so was there anything else that you kind of wanted to speak to about the uh, the gameplay and the, the structure of the game, the design of a bunch of Urbania, anything else you can think of? No, I think, I think we're pretty much all set. Like I just, like I just said, both of the games play so differently, but at the same time, they're familiar and they're so yeah. fun to play. And I just think one more, one more thing is that the repl replayability what? of these games are insane. Um, yes. You can speed run them. You can get through the game using getting no upgrades. There's actually trophies for that. There's a hard mode yeah. in both games that make the enemies mm -hmm. harder and more difficult. Um, yeah. Just this, 
you know, you can go for the 100% route. There's just so many different ways to play. And like I said, it always has me coming back. Yeah, I think there is there is actually a speedrun mode. Yes, there is. For the speedrun mode, so I did it for Axiom Verge 2 and 1. Uh, for the speedrun mode, there's just a continuous clock going, and it skips all, like, dialogue. Like, you, like if you have to talk to someone to progress the story or you just, like, t- you hit the X button, it can be kind of, well, whatever, whatever uh, system you're playing on, it can be kind of tedious because you like sometimes you're like did i actually click the button because like that you click the button and the cutscene doesn't play just like kind of well the the scene between you and the other character does doesn't play just the game just progresses as if it already had happened so it can be kind of annoying like did i actually hit it so i always did it a couple times but um yeah the clock's always running and one of the trophies for axiom verge 2 i think it's two and a half hours beat it in under two and a half which you can easily do i mean i did it in like an hour oh and 10 minutes. yeah i did it in like an hour and 10 i have the yeah, platinum for you the did second it? one i have, a, I have the platinum for both of them but i got the platinum for the second one and then went back and got the platinum for the first one because the speedrun trophy was the one that was holding me up uh the speedrun trophy is definitely easier in the second one yeah i would i, I would definitely agree because i think it's it's like i said i think it's it's more open of a game it's not as combat focused uh and you, you can i i can imagine that game is easier to run through Probably the final section of all of my episodes is what I call caveats. Again, I don't want to be negative. This this podcast series is not going to be about negativity at all. But I, so I called it caveats, which is to temper people's expectations a bit, to add some qualifiers to to when they go into the game. And I would say one of the one of the qualifiers it, it's honestly with every single Metroidvania is that you're going to get stuck, especially on your first playthrough. That's just how these games are. Again, it's 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 getting stuck in the same way that you get uh, you approach a difficult boss, right? You were presented with a challenge. You're not really sure how to conquer that challenge, um, but the reward in advancing to a new area or finding a new safe point, um, I think, is just as rewarding, um, if not close to as rewarding as defeating a boss in a more linear type of game. Would you? Would you sort of agree with that? I, w- I would say within the first the first game more so from my experience, you're going to get stuck because it is more of that again traditional NES. Really, there's re- and that's another thing with the first game. There's really there's really next to no guidance. Like you, there's no waypoints that I recall. None of the characters are really guiding you anywhere. There's no there's no markers on the map. They'll just tell you go to. They'll just include text. Go to this area. Whereas in the second game, they'll say like go to this exact point on the map. Oh, yeah, I, I definitely, you know, got stuck at some points in both games. But I, I think when you're going into playing a Metroidvania, I think you're expecting, like, yeah, there's going to be areas I'm going to get stuck. And I, I would highly suggest anyone who plays this game to not look up a guide for it. I, I think it will do you a disservice to not organically figure out what to do. If you get really, really stuck and you get frustrated, obviously you can look up a guide. Like, no one's going to hold that against you. But um, I just... I think, you know, figuring it out organically, it's just so rewarding and satisfying. But like I said, I think when you go into a Metroidvania, you're expecting, hey, this is going to be a challenging game. Um, I found the combat extremely, I'm not, you know, I'm not the greatest at combat in games. And some some of the boss fights, like I said, um, that first boss that I encountered in the first game, I died at least 10 times. But eventually, you know, you figure it out eventually. Um, yeah. Yeah, that's definitely one thing I definitely agree with is that the the you are going to get stuck. Yeah, and I, I I wanted to add the immediate qualifier when I mentioned it because it's that is a thing in every single Metroidvania. Like, if you didn't get stuck, I would I would say 
how much of a Metroidvania is it really? You know, when you have these expansive maps, they're nonlinear. You have to, you, you, you're forced to explore around and tinker and experiment with, you know, where you can access with which tool or power up or what have you. Um, and yeah, the, the first game is, is definitely more of that. I would say that sort of another caveat is the first game is more combat focused. When I said earlier, like if you do get to the first game, I think it makes the second game all the more rewarding because there are the first game uh, has mandatory boss battles that you have to be, defeat in order to get to a new area. I don't think the second one does. I think you can literally just run through the vast majority, if not all of the boss battles. Yeah, so that is like, that is true. You can uh, run through all the boss battles. Um, yeah, they're just they're just in there in the open space of of, of rooms or, or levels or, or areas. There's also a lot more optional bosses in the second game, like like bosses that. I mean, they're yeah. all technically optional, but there's some that are not non-story related that just yeah. at, they open areas or parts of an area that you couldn't get to. And some yeah. of those are pretty challenging to figure out. Some of them are you have to use specific weapons and you have to mm-hmm. do specific things that are very out of the ordinary. And it, when you figure it out, though, you're like, oh, my gosh, how did I figure that out? Some of them, uh, some of them you can figure out by reading the documents. But it, it's so like like we had said, it's so satisfying when you figure it out on your own. It's yeah. It, I akin it to a puzzle game. Like, yes, you don't, if you're going to play the witness, you don't want to look up the puzzles. I mean, that kind of yeah. defeats the purpose. Yeah. It's, it's funny, especially with the second game where it kind of alluded to where both the traditional map that you're in and the breach map are really are like two different puzzles. And you sort of have to figure out not only the puzzle of, of each of those maps, but you have to figure out how those two puzzles fit together. And it really is, it really adds such an extra layer and, and why I think the second game builds upon the first one and sort of speaking on the first one, another caveat I have is again, it is more, it is more combat focused than, than the, um, than the second game. I think enemies are um, generally speaking, they are more difficult. They're more aggro. Um, you don't necessarily have as many of a variety of options to deal with them. Um, and there are the mandatory boss battles and the bosses also, like you said, there's usually some type of specific hook to them. Like there's one, where you have to you have to reveal platforms using one of your abilities to get closer to the boss to do damage to them, and again it's it's very old school. Like when you register a hit, the 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 boss just kind of like blinks really quickly white, so you sort of know when you hit or don't hit them. They um, turn red when you know they're close to being. Hit. Yeah, yeah. But so it, it does do a good job of of messaging to you when you do get a hit or an impact, and and then I would say also in the first game this is more of a quality of life thing that they fixed in the second game. I found in the first game in addition to getting stuck it was sometimes hard to determine where actual new passageways were in some areas they weren't necessarily marked as clearly as they were in the second game so I feel like that's one more sort of quality of life thing where again if you do get through the first game it is much um it is much more accessible in the second game. I feel sometimes, you know, when there's areas in the first game that are, if it's a new passageway, it's marked with like a little gray um, square. I found so there are sometimes where I missed one or two of them. And that was kind of the three or four times in the first game when I got genuinely stuck and I'm like, Oh, there was a passageway there. It just wasn't quite clearly marked enough on the map. Whereas in the second game, it's more open. Any of those situations in the first or second game? Yeah. I found um, talking about like, you know, figuring out where areas were i I think the second map is much in the second game is much easier to 100 percent the map than Mm -hmm. the first game uh the first game there's certain areas that you can just like run by and you have you just like completely you're like what that that's an area you can go in um 
it's a lot more vertical the first game too like climbing wise yeah i would say so for sure um which again that akins back to metroid where it's very vertical um so that 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 verticality makes it a little bit more difficult to explore um but again I don't know if we're saying this because we played the first one before we played the yeah. second one. I wonder if the second one had come first, would we be saying the same thing about the second one? No, I, I yeah, I, I try to put again, I try to put my sort of hiccups with the first one in context that those things were addressed in the second one. So it's not like it's not like those mistakes were repeated. So that's why I keep I keep telling the audience who is maybe more unfamiliar with Metroidvania is that if you did get through the first game, I genuinely think the second game is more accessible i would say easier but i do i do think it is even more rewarding because i i think you're on the same page with me like i totally recommend playing the first one first because if nothing else you are getting what is essentially a very much a throwback nes um metroid game without a doubt like just from beginning to end it is awesome and then the second game um just builds upon it and expands upon it and also does those quality of life things with the map with the abilities, with the more proper, what we know today as fast travel. Um, yeah, so I, that's why I call this section caveats. Like I'm not, I wouldn't even call them nitpicks necessarily. I would call them sort of like tempering people's expectations, kind of giving them an advanced notice of, hey, here are some things you may run into in the game that may cause you frustration that are not out of the realm of expectation. Was there anything else that you want to say about either game? Um, I would just say, um, go in with an open mind in the story. Um, it can be a little confusing to follow at first, but as the game goes on, it gets you you learn more and more, and it gets a little bit easier to understand. And like like we said about the second game, uh, at first, it you're not going to understand how it connects, but when it does connect, it really hits home. Um, and I I I agree. I, I definitely play the first game before you play the second game. You can play them independently of each other, but you'll get a lot more out of the second one if you play the first one first. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah, I I totally agree. And they're both, I mean, they're both very, very affordable. They're both available on, uh, they're available on PlayStation and PC. So I think you, uh, I think they're both, can you play, do you know, can you play them on Steam Deck as well? Are they available on Steam? Yep. They're on Steam Deck. They're on Switch too. Yeah, yeah, they're on Switch too. Yeah, they're very, very available, very affordable. I think I got them both for like twenty bucks combined. I mean, they're very well worth it. They're on Xbox as well. I just looked it up. Are they on Xbox? Oh, awesome, uh, awesome. Yep, yeah, they're so on they're Xbox, yeah, yeah, they're available everywhere. I want to say the the first game took me about eighteen hours on my first playthrough, and the second game took me about fourteen. I want to say so. It's it's right in that sort of sub twenty hour sweet spot. And again, I don't I don't consider myself proficient or, or expert at at these types of games, I got stuck, you know, as much as anyone else who's played the games. But even with getting stuck, you're not going to be spending, you know, 25, 30 plus hours on any of these games. Do you remember what your time was for both first playthroughs? Oh, God. Um, well, the first playthrough for Axiom Verge 2, I know I did 100% playthrough on my first one because I knew I was going to go for the Platinum. So I wanted to do the 100% one first. So I have, so when I got to like where I, pretty much figured the final boss was I kind of went back and kind of ran through the area. So that timer was all messed up. Okay. Um, The first game, probably around 16, 17 hours in the first game, just organically exploring and, you know, figuring out, Hey, I'll, I'll find as many weapons as I can, but if I don't get them all, I'm going to eventually get them all on a second playthrough. 
Yeah, I think on the I think on the first game I ended up with like eighty five percent of the map and like sixty something percent of the items, which I felt pretty good with. I was like, oh, that's that seems about right. Maybe it's actually a little bit higher than I expected. No, I can't think of of anything else. I think we I think we we summed up this game. Any uh, any last words about this game or series? Are there any other sort of Metroidvanias in this type of game or any other type of game that that reminded you of this game, of these games that you would want to recommend to people? I mean, definitely, if you like these games, uh, don't do what I did and actually, you know, maybe actually play, you know, more Metroid and play more Castlevania. Yeah. Yeah. You had mentioned, oh, you the, like these, yeah. You had mentioned a link to the past as well with the sort of the dual map thing in, in, uh, in the second game. And I think that's, that's a, that's a good shout. Uh, yeah. Definitely play, play the Metroid games, play the, uh, play the Castlevania games. Um, there's a substantial catalog alone between those two franchises. I love I love both Ori games. I think they're both magnificent. They're very they're much more traversal focused Metroidvanias, and that's the beauty of the genre is that even within Metroidvanias, all the games are distinctly different. Even if something like the first Axiom Verge harkens back to the original Metroid more than others, I think Axiom Verge two definitely stands more on its own. And uh, yeah, I think they're incredibly rewarding to play and i think i hope that people who listen to this episode and and play them enjoy them nearly as much as the both of us but yes sean thank you um so much for your time i am so glad you were able to join me and we were able to find really i think probably the perfect game to to kick off this podcast and something that i don't know if i would have ever played without your uh without your evangelism of the game but i just i love metroidvanias this is definitely not only a game that is underappreciated within the genre, but I think is underappreciated, broadly speaking, for both games. So, thank you. Oh well, thank you. No, thank you for having me. Uh, honestly, this was awesome. When you told me you were doing a project like this, I was like, I was, you know, super into it. Super, I love the topic. Um, very unique. You would think that more people would have podcasts about like why you should play these games, but no one really has a dedicated podcast about yes. hey, you need to play this game. And uh, I love that concept. And, you know, I was honored when you asked me to come on for the first episode. Yeah. And ecstatic when you told me it was on Axiom Verge. Yeah. Yeah. And then uh, I, I saw the Steelbook, I think, a couple of weeks ago. And I'm like, well, this is just serendipitous. I have to get the Steelbook because it's just iconic. And yeah, I will, uh, when the episode launches, I will post, I will post the Steelbook and that people will be able to view it and bask in its glory. And yeah, we we will definitely we will definitely be discussing another game. I don't know which one yet, but you are you are not you are fortunately not shy about talking about the games you love, and there are certainly a number of them because I know you play a wide variety, which I try to do as well. But so, Balan Wonderworld up next. Balan Wonderworld. Oh, that'll maybe that maybe when maybe when Wisp expands into like a Let's Play series because you. You you cannot describe that game. You'll it only has to be witnessed. I think based on what I've seen. But oh, for sure. Oh, I mean, yeah, I we will. Forty hours into it. Forty hours. Wow. Did you get the platinum? Yeah, I went for the platinum. I went for the platinum on it. Yeah. Did you you got it? Yeah, I did. Yeah. Oh wow. Um, Do you remember what the percentage of the platinum is? Uh, it's like point, maybe point eight or point nine. Wow, it's actually higher than I would have expected. To be honest with you, um, it is. It is an interesting game. I can leave it at that. That's. That's 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 what I've heard. I think it'll go down. Unfortunately, I think in infamy, but we shall see. Maybe it will achieve cult status, classic. But yeah, we will we will definitely um, 
we will definitely reunite again on this podcast. It's just a, it's just a matter of what, uh, what game I do have other, um, future games planned, including one that I am trying my damnedest to make happen. It is sort of a pipe dream ish episode that I don't want to allude to. I think a few people know about it, but I am going to try my best. And if you know, you're talking about what I think you're talking about, I think it will happen. I have faith. It will okay. happen. Okay. I, know I, it will happen. I hope so for, for multiple reasons that I, I do hope it will happen, but yes, thank you again. Thank you to everyone who's listening. If you have any ideas um, for a game that you would like to do, um, reach out to me. I think I will provide, I set up a, an, uh, an email address for the podcast. So, if there's any recommendations on games that people want to discuss, um, the obvious qualifier is I had to have played and completed it. I know a lot of people are groaning right now because I am infamous for, for playing games and not completing them. But um, yeah, I'm actually going to get um, try to start a new game this weekend that I want to do for my podcast. So the, the grind commences. Thank you again, Sean. Thank you to everyone listening. And we will see you next time.